Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. This episode finds us chatting with mechanical engineer Jack Reed about philosophy and engineering. Ever wonder whether you were more a pragmatist, a rationalist, or an aesthetist? Well, you can find out more about those terms and Brian's plans to launch a Kickstarter for Utopia on this episode of the Engineering Commons. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 87, Existential Engineer, July 23rd, 2015. So, Jeff, how would you judge your knowledge of philosophical concepts? Uh, that would be pretty poor. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you kind of, you know, you kind of catch in, in reading through literature, but I never really had much of an interest. I never cared too much. Your entire life is not just one long syllogism? Isn't that something, isn't that like a logical proof? Yes. Or I, I believe it is, in a, and our guest can explain this at some point, I believe it is a logical statement of equivalence ah uh no so my, my life may be that i don't know but i don't perceive it to be that and it, it just seemed to me like these people were spending an awful lot of time with a lot of words explaining stuff that really to me wasn't all that important but uh, but on the other hand as i've gotten older uh this i have sort of wanted to understand more of you know so what is what is the meaning uh, and in particular, when we started this podcast, what is the meaning of being an engineer? You know, Chris and I talked about, you know, uh, trying to explore some of the philosophical issues of engineering, but we've really never delved too deeply into philosophy per se. We've, we've touched at it. We've, we've hit at the edges, but, uh, haven't really, uh, really done a deep dive into, uh, the philosophy of engineering. So did you have much, uh, philosophical background, uh, either as part of your engineering career or, or before or after that? Uh, well, I went to a liberal arts university where it was a required part of the curriculum. So I, I had two courses in philosophy and uh, several in theology, which were, I guess, in modern liberal education or effectively philosophy classes mm -hmm. and, and literature classes, I would also say. Um, right. But, uh, yeah, I actually got quite a bit out of my philosophy classes. Did, did you find it beneficial just on a sort of a personal basis, or, or was it somehow beneficial in your engineering career? Uh, I would say it did not benefit my engineering career. I think a lot of people would like to say that, you know, because there's some relationship between maybe Boolean arithmetic and uh, – the logical formalism of the way philosophy is taught, I thought it was actually more helpful in forming a worldview, mm -hmm. um, or at least uh, at least a way to interpret the world. I have found myself to be much more of a utilitarian and a uh, pragmatist in the proper definition of those words. Okay. Um, you know, with a seasoning of libertarian. <laughs> right to taste and those are those are all concepts that were explored in my introduction to a philosophy class okay 
and and those courses weren't required because you were taking engineering. It was because you were taking an engineering at a school that felt that those courses were important. Exactly. All right. Well, certainly um, philosophy uh, gives us a means of understanding what what existence means and what our being means and what life means. And at the same time, engineering is sort of a different way of seeing the world. I, at times, I even think of engineering as its own philosophy, you know, seeing problems, breaking them up into small pieces, solving the small pieces, uh, putting the, putting the uh, pieces back together and, and solving a big problem. And I think that uh, we get used to, as engineers, get used to that problem-solving routine. And so we tend to see the world in a uh, slightly different way, uh, as would be evidenced by the fact that at least when I talk to family members who aren't engineers, they often look at me with a strange quizzical look as to what are you talking about. And those that are are also engineers look at me and nod their heads up and down and go, well, of course, there is no other way to solve the problem. So It's called being right, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I like that answer. I like it too. I'm not sure if it's correct, but I like it. Yes, since since it's entirely self-serving, let's go with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we thought we would uh, talk this evening some about philosophy and about how engineers see the world and what it is that uh, engineers get out of their lives, out of their existence. Uh, we'll sort of do a, a, a quick dive into some philosophical issues. And so to to join us, to help us with that conversation, our guest for this episode is Jack Reed, a mechanical engineer who recently graduated from Texas A&M. And in addition to getting his mechanical engineering degree, he also graduated with a second degree in philosophy. Jack has traveled globally, having spent time in uh, Qatar, uh, Spain, and Italy. And so, uh, Jack, welcome to the Engineering Commons. Thank you, Jeff. How are you doing tonight? Well, I'm doing great. How are things in New Mexico? Hey, it's going well. And just for people who are confused by the, the graduating from, from A&M and, and now I'm in New Mexico, it's interning here uh, before at Sandia National Labs before heading up to graduate school this fall. Fantastic. And do we get the definition of a syllogism correct? Uh, yeah, pretty much. The, the funny thing is uh, I never was very big into logic at all uh, when taking my philosophy classes. I avoided it as much as I could. <laughs> it just seemed like a trap. It did. Uh, I very much agree with that. It, it seemed like it was defeating the. It seemed like it was making philosophy unnecessarily uninteresting. <laughs> <laughs> it's like doing chrom uh, chromography uh, of wine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what kind of work are you doing over in uh, the national labs? Uh, I do. I work in their environments testing. Uh, division so shock and vibe shock and vibe mostly uh, I work on the analytical side the sort of the analytical computational side some of my coworkers do more experimental uh-huh but like you have the big like shake tables and stuff yeah exactly centrifuges all that sort of thing uh, yeah yeah and it's a, the unfortunate thing is I can't go into too much detail on like what I work on but uh, <laughs> uh -huh. that's how it works do you guys try and play Jenga on like a big shake table and see who's better at it like take it to the next level Oh, that sounds so much fun. And the thing is, back in the 70s, you could have done that sort of thing. And all of the old engineers there are always complaining about how they can't get away with anything anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Just write it up as like a grand proposal, like the structural integrity of a Lincoln Log-esque structure. 
Apparently, back in the day, one of the departments they used this on all their presentations. I've seen it. Uh, this photo of like a bullet going through an apple that they just uh-huh. like made one day. Uh, they're like, we just want this to be our logo. So go down, go down to the lab and and make it. And that that would not that would not fly nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> Such a shame. Having actually been around a large mill grade uh, shake table. The Jenga and the shake table might be the most dangerous thing you've ever done. <laughs> yes, I have seen uh, uh, photos. Luckily, I was not present at the time, but I've seen photos from the, the aftermath of a large centrifuge that broke. Uh, Cindy owns, and that's that's a terrifying sight. Well, you don't have to crank it up to 11 your first go around. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have a tickle setting. <laughs> So, uh, Jack, we uh, usually open with this question. What got you interested in engineering? So for me, it was, I mean, the, the usual preamble, I guess, is was good at math and science and in high school and everything. Uh, for mm-hmm. me, I was, I wanted to have a practical effect with whatever I did. That was why I did not go, say, physics or something. Uh, I wanted to, to make, be able to make a real difference and be able to, to see what I worked on. Uh, so both being able to, to see and touch what I worked on, uh, and because I was completely undetermined in where I wanted to go and work, mm-hmm. I, I chose mechanical engineering because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I felt that it was most broad <laughs> and now I'm going to grad school because I still don't know what I want to do. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I, I remember my father saying that he decided he'd, uh, He'd be a mechanical engineer until he grew up and decided what he really wanted to do. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll, we'll see if, if that happens for me. I'm enjoying working here at Sandia, so maybe I'll come back. Who knows? Cool. So, and and the uh, grad school is at where? That is at MIT up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Fantastic. And and uh, what are you what are you going to be uh, concentrating on when you're there? Looking at doing uh, another dual program, actually. Uh, Okay. Probably with uh, with aerospace engineering and with they have a program up there called technology and policy, sort of getting use of my my philosophy background as well. Cool. That sounds great. Well, I suppose the obvious question is then uh, what motivated you to get the second degree in philosophy, and how in the world did you do that at the same time? So yeah, that was actually it was surprising to me. I did not expect this. Uh, I would say it was an idle interest of mine. I thought that it would be good to to learn. Um, mm-hmm. and I planned on getting a minor in philosophy and I went and talked to the philosophy advisor and he looked at the, the high school, the, the college credit I'd come into high school with and my degree plan and everything. And he, he just shows me, you know, you could get a minor, but you could also just do a major and graduate on time. Uh, and I was like, okay, why not? Uh, <laughs> that was that was the main part of it. As far as like why philosophy as opposed to, you know, like, I don't know, Spanish or something um, was like, I did think it was important to, to figure out how I viewed the world and how, and how to live life. And, Mm -hmm. you know, just like when I guess Carmen, when you're, when you're designing a, when you're designing some semiconductors, you don't go and re-derive all of Maxwell's equations and do his experiments and prove that they work. You just learn about them and then use them. Uh, Correct. So, yeah. And so I felt the same way about philosophy. Like, yeah, I could try to derive all this stuff and figure all this out, but I'm not going to do it. Right. Cause like, first off, 
it'd take forever. Second off, like there's a lot of people in the past who are way smarter than me. I have no pretensions about being able to, to replicate Einstein's work. Uh, mm-hmm. So I don't have similarly, I don't have any pretensions about uh, being able to replicate, you know, Kant or, or Hume's work. So for the same reason. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I trust they check their math. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And there was even there, there is actually some some overlap. I do remember reading both read a fair amount of both Newton and Leibniz uh, in some of my early modern philosophy classes. Hmm. Wow. True Renaissance man. Yeah, exactly. Leibniz wrote in a just an obscene amount of, of stuff. They're they're still translating it. <laughs> right. So so uh, since there was a certain amount of crossover, was it at all useful? Was there any part of your philosophy studies that you found useful in your engineering classes or vice versa? I, I would I would say primarily vice versa. In that engineering, particularly controls and differential equations, uh, mm-hmm. gave me a very different way of thinking about a lot of what uh, philosophers were talking about, particularly when they were talking about free will versus determinism, uh, mm-hmm. thinking about things as, you know, a, a determined system, a defined system uh, was gave me a much better handle on that. That's for sure. Do you feel like uh, your con- uh a background in controls gave you a way to look at equilibriums differently. Oh yes, for sure. Yes, because uh, I've, I've, def- I've definitely found, with respect to even politics and you know, in economics. I, yes. Oh yeah, like economics, different economic systems and monopolies and everything. Yeah, I, I routinely think of those uh, from a control standpoint, and yeah, stability and equilibrium and all of that. Okay. Now I know why engineers go into finance. Well, it's and sometimes it's it's purely abstract or, or uh, qualitative. Where I yes. don't know what's going on, but I know it's finding its equilibrium. Exactly. You know, the, the I always thought about it with with monopolies that that capitalism un uninterrupted its natural equilibrium point is is monopolies, and that's mm-hmm. why that's why you have antitrust laws to sort of like push it off that that equilibrium. What are those? Antitrust laws. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> right. As Comcast cuts off my internet. <laughs> exactly. Well, a few uh, few episodes back uh, in uh, episode 12, we talked with uh, <laughs> just, Doc- just like four years ago. <laughs> <laughs> a few episodes. Just a few, yeah. Well, to me, it just seems like we've been doing this for a couple of weeks. I don't know how it is that several years have gone by. I mean, what, mo- most of you weren't even there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I wasn't even around then. <laughs> All right. So so I talked with uh, Dr. Carl Steffen in episode 12, and he was talking about the engineering ethics program. Uh, that's required of all engineering students at Texas A&M. And since you went to Texas A&M, and that program is a joint effort between their engineering and philosophy departments, I'm guessing you must have had some some exposure to that uh, to that program. Yes, I did. Uh, the yeah, it is very much a joint effort. The the philosophy department they keep on a professor. You know, they they pretty much hire a professor for handling this class. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not his only job, but it's the primary reason why he's hired. Uh, the funny thing is, I did not actually take engineering ethics at A and M. I took it while studying abroad at our our campus over in Qatar, uh, which gave me a very very different feel for it. And I think that it is taught very differently at back in College Station than it is uh, abroad. Uh, 
and I was I was somewhat involved with I, I helped to do some peer tutoring for for essays as well as part of that, which is a, a major sticking point for for engineers having you know <laughs> in all through high school you know you're writing these interpretive essays on on books and everything, and then you get to do an engineering degree, and unless you go to a liberal arts school, you you really don't do that. Uh, in an engineering degree, you write technical reports and engineers get right. good at technical reports. Yeah. Then you throw them a, an argument essay or an opinion essay and they don't know, they don't know which way is up. So feedback diagrams in it and everything and <laughs> state machines. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of them, I, I would see some engineers would just try to rely really heavily on references uh, and not actually add anything to it. Uh, so I had to help convince them to, to break that habit. But and I, I know, you know, a lot of engineers are not necessarily in, in, into it at the time. I think it's one of those things that you probably you probably don't see the, the need for until much later in your career. Uh, mm-hmm. And as a young undergraduate, who is a lot of them have never even had a job. They probably don't see the, the value of ethics. They assume that, oh, I'll, I'll always know what the I'm a genuinely good person. I'll know the right thing to do when it comes time, which is why I think that. When I took it abroad, uh, the class was heavily emphatic on case studies, which I think is the best way to teach ethics to undergraduates, uh, just giving them examples of the kinds of things that actual engineers did, both good and bad. Right. Can you give an example of a couple of case studies? So, of course, the Challenger and Columbia are common ones. Uh, BP is a, is, a new, is a new hot one. Um, that was, was Challenger... That never struck me as an ethics as much as a organizational. I never got the understanding that the people who are making the decisions fully understand the fully understood the uh, technical merits or the technical arguments that were being put in front of them. Yeah, I mean, and and that's part of it, right? That we that we talked about in ethics because part of that class, because you're writing essays, is about communication, mm-hmm. uh, and it was about priorities. I think was was a big part of it. Uh, because if I remember correctly, that there was some, yeah, there was some debate about what constituted uh, an undue risk mm-hmm. and everything. There was there were some people who thought that it shouldn't, uh, other people who thought that it should. We talk about how uh, in the ethics class we did talk about there's a, there's a difference between the, the engineer hat and the manager hat, uh, even if it is an engineer who is a manager, mm-hmm. uh, and they have different priorities. You know, an, an engineer wants something to be the, the most efficient, the, the most durable, uh, the, the most reliable. And a manager has to, to step in at a certain point and say, like, no, it's good enough. We need, we need to sell this now. Uh, and, and I think that it seemed like there was a, a breakdown there where, where some people put on their manager hats when they, when they should have been keeping on the engineering hat. Well said. Thank you. So Challenger, BP... Yeah, not all of them were not all of them were, were negative like that. Actually, the the one that I had to give a presentation on was uh, the City Court building in New York, uh, which is was that the one that was fatiguing early? Yeah, yeah. If I remember correctly, now I have to now I have to, to pull this out of my memory. But uh, basically, pull open all the walls and yes, well, reinforcement. Exactly. So, yeah. so this was they they went with a novel design. Uh, they went with a novel design and they put they it's a basically a lifted up building the entire skyscraper is basically on stilts but instead of putting the stilts on the corners they put them on the the midpoints of each side and it made it more vulnerable to what's called a 
quartering winds, so winds that come at like a 45-degree angle. Mm-hmm. And this was not anticipated by the, the engineers. Uh, but when it was called to their attention, actually by a, by a college student who's doing a project on it, uh, the, the engineers like quickly went into action. City Corp paid to, to do the renovation immediately. Uh, and yeah, and ultimately, yeah, it never fell down. It, was ne- it never was a disaster because some people acted correctly. I know we have a lot of students that listen. Take the time, and I think a lot of them are on YouTube now and watch Engineering Disasters. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, like you, you can learn so much for those. Just like because it's it's never people assume that it's somebody falling asleep on the job or something, and it's often it's often not that. It's often small choices that that yeah. compound. Yep. Yeah, we can we can put off that test till later. We have to make the this test happen now and. It's always the ones that you don't do that bite in the ass. Exactly. And a big part of the ethics course was, uh, was how to handle things internationally. Because you know, you, when you grow up in, if you grow up in the U.S. the entire life, and if, especially if you go to a state school, a lot of the people grew up in that state. So you, you grew up in sort of, sort of one environment. You know, everybody's like, you, you say, oh, bribery is bad. Of course, bribery is bad. I wouldn't do it. Nepotism is bad. Of course, I, you know, ne- nepotism is bad. I would never do that sort of thing. Uh, but then you go abroad and it's like you're in India and you're trying to get a document signed, you know, by some, so by a bureaucrat or something. And, and they're asking for some extra money. Do you pay them? Uh, because frankly, in the U.S., you're probably just not going to have to do with blatant bribes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so the, learning how to handle that and a lot of engineers and I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, U.S. federal law is if you bribe a government official in another country as an American citizen, like you are liable under U.S. criminal law. Here it's a, it's a felony. Yes, exactly. So, so even if you're not in the U.S. I thought the answer was what's your per diem. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, and keep so, in mind, it, it, that, and I don't know all of the ins and outs, but I'm pretty sure that your company is also on the hook as well. Yes, and there's been some cases of that uh, with both some, some oil companies and uh, I, I and I can't remember some of the, the examples, but it was some some major international companies have gotten in trouble for that sort of thing, including some some engineering firms. Mm-hmm. You know, not not it, it's not just banks or something that are. That are corrupt and spent, you know, wasting everybody's money or something. Uh, but but some engineering companies, hmm. and I mean, it might seem like, oh, if I pay this guy, I can get my supplies through quicker and I can get this job done quicker. And oh, all of my local competitors, they're bribing the guys. Why shouldn't I? Uh, so so understanding that, uh, and yeah, and that was it was a great part of taking it while abroad because I was surrounded by all these these students from from all over the Middle East and South Asia and. Southeast Asia, and even uh, some. There was a student from from Russia there. Uh, so yeah, and they all had things worked very differently, uh, and boundaries are different. And part of that, I never realized the. So you know, we say nepotism is bad, and we can we sort of box off nepotism as like this clearly defined thing. Mm-hmm. But when you start talking to people in other languages, it's it's not always it it makes it obvious that many things like that are not, don't have hard edges. Uh, the word I remember in particular while over there was the, the Arabic word wasta, uh, which 
it sort of translates to nepotism, but <laughs> with a much more broad meaning. Uh, you could use it for a person. You could say like, this person is my wasta, as in like, they were the one who hired me because they're my cousin or whatever. Uh, but it didn't necessarily have a negative connotation. Like you could use it as, oh, that guy only got his job because of wasta. But it could also just, you know, how we use, you know, getting a job, you know, at your dad's company or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, your foot in the door that way. Yeah, exactly, right? Is like, it almost it akin to a sponsor? Exactly, because it wasn't even always a family member, right? Sometimes it could be like, oh, my, my uncle has a friend and they they have a company or whatever. Yeah, um, it's kind of like networking sort of too. Exactly. They would they would use it like networking. And then I realized the, at A&M, we have this big thing. We always talk about the, the Aggie network. Uh and, and then I realized, I started thinking about it and I, and I, and I realized, you know, that the, the Aggie network and nepotism, they're not like two clearly defined separate things. Like there can be a blending between the two. And like, where do you, where do you draw the line for, for when it becomes unethical? Hmm. Did you find that the uh, non-US students you interacted with looked at, I'll just say American for lack of a better word, ethics is a bit Pollyanna-ish? Uh, Yes, to a certain extent. I, well, and I, but I, I think that all of them, pretty much everyone I talked to aspired to that. Uh, all the ones at, at this school in, in my class, none of them were satisfied. If their country was one where bribery uh, was more common, I don't think any of them were happy about it. You know, they, these were people who they spoke English perfectly fluently. You know, they they were watching the same YouTube videos as the American kids playing the same iPhone games and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, in many ways, they, they had a Western worldview. And so many of them were, were not happy with, with how it worked. But on the other hand, they were like, well, yeah, I couldn't get I couldn't get out of my home country to here unless I paid the, you know, the, the government officials some money so I could get my passport. So there's a the practicality to it, too. Yeah. And a lot of them hoped to to go back to their countries and, and try to improve things, and like that's why they're getting an, an education from an American institution. Hmm. So my thought is that I certainly know that as a young adult, that it was tough for me to realize all the areas of gray that one might get into in life. I, as you indicated earlier, I did think everything was pretty much you know good or evil, white or black. You know, it, it, the markings would be clearly defined and you don't realize that you sort of wander in through life. You wander into areas where uh, there's a lot of people saying, hey, it's great over here. This is this is good. And, you know, all of a sudden you're dealing with uh, opinion and politics and uh, convention and social norms that lead you into an area where you suddenly find yourself uh, that you didn't think you would you might necessarily be. So my question is, if that's difficult for young engineers to understand, young adults of any type to understand, is there some sort of, uh, you know, vocabulary or framework related to philosophy that you think would would help young engineering students better understand the uh, ethics and, and have a, a more meaningful discussion about it? I, and I, I, that's sort of part of the class. They do get into some terminology. I think from what I've seen, they sometimes get into too much terminology. They start throwing around <laughs> words like consequentialism and deontologism, which okay. is funny because you never use either of those words in any of the philosophy classes. Uh, <laughs> right. But uh, armchair philosophers, though. Yeah. Ex- <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. Right. Uh, I think that some of those can help. I think, it, uh, and something that I would like to see more of is exposure to international viewpoints. 
on it, mm-hmm. because I think that's the, the easiest way to break people out of mental habits. Uh, you can, if you just throw out some, some definitions, a lot of times people will internalize them into their own frameworks that they, that they grew up with when it comes to ethics. Uh, you know, like the, the words, you know, right and wrong and ethical and unethical, they come laden down with, with so much baggage already, uh, when you go into a class like that. So I find being confronted with how other, other people and cultures deal with things, uh, can then make you realize some, some aspects of your, your own upbringing that you, that you never questioned before. Mm-hmm. Would you say that that, the coursework in a American philosophy uh, curriculum is almost entirely Western based. I mean, it's Greek, it's classical Greek and Re- and Renaissance Enlightenment, um, almost exclusively, isn't it? Yes, uh, I mean, there, there, there's there's a fair amount of modern stuff, and there's but yes, uh, it goes all the way up to, until you know into the 1900s and late 1900s. But yes, it does tend to be uh, pretty Western-based for sure, and I, I do think that is a a, a failing. Uh, there's been some some recent work to try to 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 bring things together. Uh, I, I did have the opportunity to read some, some Middle Eastern uh, authors from throughout history, and I would really like to read some some East Asian philosophers throughout history and, and see their points. Do, uh, do you find that they're at least in your early readings, are there similar traditions? In yes, I mean yeah, to a certain extent. Uh, well, I mean it, it's kind of funny that you do have a discipline of philosophy. Yes, uh, and it, it, I mean if you look at all the, I guess the societal practicality of it, it has always struck me as amazing as the ultimate luxury of a society is to contemplate itself and its its own thoughts. Yeah. And that's what I think, uh, uh, Samuel Florman, uh, in this book, the, the existential pleasures of engineering that I think we'll be talking about a bit later on. Uh, he even comments that the, the Greek philosophers who, who prized reason and abstract reason and philosophy over applied things, uh, even like astronomy, which they thought was too applied. Uh, they could only do that because they had, you know, conquered portions of the Mediterranean and had a bunch of slaves to do manual labor for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is definitely uh, a real part of it. And I think that that's something that in the past couple centuries, past two centuries, really, uh, that some philosophers have tried to get away from. You had uh, American pragmatism. You had the, the rise of existentialism and everything uh, to try to get away from this from this abstract pondering of, you know, what's truth and what's justice to, you know, more practical matters of what's important to me and how do I live my life? Ah, the pragmatists are my favorite. Oh, yeah. They're, <laughs> yeah, they're awesome. All right. Well, tell you what, to uh, uh, to give our audience uh, some, some structure and background for this, and as well as myself, because <laughs> uh, as I mentioned in the introduction – uh, my philosophical grounding is pretty weak. Can you give us, uh, Jack, just sort of a, 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 you know, a thumbnail outline of, you know, what is philosophy and maybe how we, you know, break it down, how we better understand it? Yeah, sure. So, so philosophy, it literally means, uh, the, the love of, of wisdom, uh, uh, searching for wisdom. 
if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. Now, now I'm second guessing myself. Uh, but <laughs> and yeah, so it's mostly just about thinking about the world, life, and how we live it. The the basic areas are you know logic everybody knows about, which is since you know become mathematics and as we know it, and engineers probably use logic fairly heavily. Um, mm-hmm. And there there are different kinds of logic. Uh, science science and in Scientists typically use either inductive or, or abductive reasoning, which is where you, you start from as evidence and you try to extrapolate from that evidence or make a hypothesis, a universal hypothesis based on that evidence. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, those are prone to failure, as we've seen with the, the history of science. We're routinely finding out we're wrong about things. Uh, right. Then there's deductive reasoning, also which is called sort of analytical uh, statements. Right. which is what mathematicians use, which is they declare the axioms that they're starting from and they move on to more specific things from there. Uh, so, so they have the virtue of they can know when they're right uh, okay. definitively. Uh, the, the issue is in the real world, we don't have those, those axioms to, to start from that mathematicians have. Uh, so in part of that, we have and part of sort of looking into trying to figure out what those axioms are, there's the, the discipline discipline of metaphysics, which is, yeah, it's basically the the sort of what is underneath physics. So what is the fundamental fundamental nature of being, you know, is there a real world outside of outside of myself, that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. There's and then there's ontology is sort of related to that, which is about what is uh, what is existence. Um and along those lines, there's epistemology, which is what is knowledge? What can we know? That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's aesthetics, which, I mean, we've, you've talked about on this podcast before, which is all about beauty. Like, what, yeah, what do we consider beautiful? Which is actually a, a favorite topic of mine in, in philosophy classes. Uh, because some, some, some philosophers have given that some serious thought and come up with some things that I never would have thought of. Uh, of course, there's ethics about how you should live life. You know, what is justice, that sort of thing, how society should be built. Right. Uh, and that, so those are the, the main types. Uh, I can go into some, some more details. Uh, so, so pragmatism is something that we talked about uh, already. And pragmatism, it's all about it sort of rejects the idea that there's some sort of like ideal truth. You know, people always talk about Plato's shapes, what mathematicians say, you know, that numbers, that there's ideals out there that the real world is just a poor reflection of. Uh, pragmatism sort of gets rid of that, says that the, the main point of philosophy should be for figuring out how to live your life on a day-to-day basis. Uh, and like, that's, that's the, that's the important thing. Uh, we also mentioned the word existentialism, uh, which is similar to pragmatism in many ways. Uh, existentialism is that the, the important thing is how you feel about things. Like, you know, the ph- philosophers historically, they tried to be very abstract and be like, and, and talk about how despair and pain are just illusions that, you know, that the world puts before you and you need to get through those, uh, that emotions are just distractions from, you know, ideal reason and that sort of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And existentialism says like, no, those things, those are what you experience. And thus they're the, they're the only things that are truly real to you. Uh, so you should, you should give them credit that, you know, that what you feel is, is real and you should find mm-hmm. meaning in that. Uh, so it's, it's related to pragmatism and that it's sort of centered on the, the individual and on like the day to day. 
Isn't the heart of pragmatism, though, that we have imperfect knowledge? Yes, yeah, so well, the sort of... Oh, go ahead. Uh, I mean, it's just I've always understood that uh, uh, pragmatism is the one philosophical subgroup that recognizes uh, each the failings of all of the previous philosophical movements, if you will. I should say movements, where it says, look, you know, we know more than our previous generations and our, and the next generations are going to know more than us. So let's acknowledge your imperfection and always strive for perfection. Yes, exactly. So, so, and I, there's some of it's, uh, uh, Dewey and, Dewey, there, was, yeah. and there was a British uh, man who came over to teach in, in the U S called, uh, called Whitehead. Uh, they were, they're big on, on pragmatism and yes. And some of them, they came for sort of scientific backgrounds and they, they recognized that, you know, the, the problem with philosophies is that they tend to not individual philosophies tend to not take into the, the full scope of, of experience that, you know, taught, you know, the ancient Greeks talking about all these ideals and abstract ideas, they, they didn't take into account, you know, the, the fundamental day to day, you know, how you feel when you wake up, uh, you know, and, but then, yeah. And then, but then others, you know, solipsism and everything would focus too much on the individual. Uh, and that pragmatism was like, well, you know, there's some truth in all of these and we're going to keep moving forward and we'll be better. Uh, and that way it's, it's very much like, like science or engineering. Well, it's also, and I think it, it relates very effectively to, uh, the experiences of science, scientists and engineers, particularly those of the late 1800s and early 20th century, where you had multiple upheavals in the way we understand nature at that time, you know, the transition from Newton maybe to, you know, Maxwell being thrown in there, and all of a sudden you have Einstein. The rec- You could see real time in a way that was novel. Uh, things changing. Exactly. And a great way, I think, to, to sort of visualize pragmatism for, for an engineering audience uh, is, you know, we always teach and we think about often electrons, the, the whole planetary model of the atom, where you have protons and neutrons in the center and electrons flying in circles around them. Uh, and it's a useful idea, but we know that it's not true. Exactly. Uh, and and pragmatists, they say, like, all of these philosophies that are out there, they all are useful models in their own domain, but none of them really represent the whole reality. That's not important. Yeah. That's, I mean, and that's, I guess, and if you talk to anyone who's into modeling, it's not necessarily important that it reflects the underlying reality, just that it reflects the underlying reality good enough. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I think, you know, heuristics are, are incredibly important things. And the, the only problem with it, and this is, can particularly become a problem, you know, in, with increasing specialization, which is something that Whitehead sort of just talked about the problems of is, you know, the, the only issue is when you start believing the model is real, uh, which I think a lot of, <laughs> I think a lot of novice scientists and novice engineers do. And novice financial engineers. Yes. Yes, for sure. <laughs> yeah. The, the, these models, they, they were made by humans within certain bounds and assumptions, and they only work within those bounds and assumptions. Jeff, I think we've talked about black swan theory, have we not? Well, we have. That that uh, that has been a topic that has come up in the past. Yeah, well, I've, I've referred to uh, uh, 
uh, was his name uh, Taleb? Taleb? I believe so. Uh, his book, Black Swan, and he had another one, Anti-Fragile, uh, that came after that. But, you know, his, his whole bit was that uh, we keep relying on on things where we think we think we understand the probabilities and we rely on Gaussian distributions, assuming that everything is Gaussian, has a normal distribution. But in fact, there are a lot of parts of life that happen rarely, uh, occasionally, and they can have huge impacts. And so we're suddenly surprised by it. Uh, and so the whole idea of a black swan was that that up until the fact that people saw black swans in Australia, nobody thought they existed. And so uh, if you if you based your scientific method or your your financial model or whatever around the fact that black swans couldn't exist, uh, you were in big trouble when they suddenly appeared. Exactly. I mean, it's like that. We you know we still teach Newton's equations when we, we've known for about a hundred years now that they're that they're not exactly correct. Uh, but they're they're very good approximations unless mm-hmm. you're one of dealing with one of the very very few cases where things are traveling near the speed of light. Right. Could you imagine if we did relativistic mechanics instead of kinematics? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you have to keep track of decimal places to like the twenty seventh or something. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> no, no, let's not go there, please. <laughs> Just trying to prove how smart we are to, to everybody, make make engineering more inaccessible. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jack, I'm I'm curious, um, and this may just be a a more a a reflection of my mindset or <laughs> maybe limited abilities. Uh, but so, w- my perception of this, at least in my younger years, was people would talk about this, and I'd go, "Well, this is a lot of words about nothing." We're arguing, you know, is this the life? You know, is what I perceive really reality? Is mm-hmm. is the world what we think it is? Are my thoughts able to help me understand? Is my logic able to help me understand reality? And to me, all that seemed like, who cares? This is this is what I can do. Maybe I maybe I fell into the pragmatist group without realizing that's what I was doing. But as an engineer, who you were taking some classes where you were you know you're doing these models and you're doing these calculations, and one would think you were being uh, very you know, rational about your thought there. Uh, did you, what, so what was, what was the interest over in the philosophy side? Did you find this uh, very interesting? Did you find it insightful? Did you find it frustrating? Uh, just, just what was your view of, of this philosophical approach? I mean, they all had the, if you talk about sort of the, the, the older philosophers, yeah. Who talk about like, is anything real? Uh, mm-hmm. The, Yes. Uh, I mean, there's bits and pieces in there that I enjoyed, but I, I agree. Like I, I did not wholeheartedly endorse any of them. And I think that part of the problem is that when, when we're going to do an introductory course to philosophy, we're like, Oh, we got to hit all the, the, all the classics. Right. So we're going to do Plato and Socrates, Aristotle. Maybe we'll get up to, to Descartes or something. Uh, mm-hmm. and, but the thing is all of those guys, those guys are all the guys who are talking about like these abstract ideals. Uh, it's right. not until you get to, to Kant uh, and on that people start talking about like no, what's important is is the individual and how and how you perceive it and everything. Yeah, for for a long time people were arguing over little nitpicky details about what matter and substance was and how could it have qualities and how could it interact with with us uh, and all these things that are pretty much entirely outside of experience. Uh, and while they can be fun thought experiments, uh, 
and games sometimes, uh, mm-hmm. they're, they're not, they're not the way to get a practical minded person interested in philosophy. Okay. It's like trying to start uh, an engineering education by diving into Z transforms and, you know, the discrete Fourier transform and all that stuff instead of making a light blink. Yes, exactly. They're going to be like, what, what is this used for? Uh, and yeah, there is some merit, uh, in the, in those older philosophers. And you, especially if you see sort of how ideas developed over time, uh, that, that is, that is a wonderful thing, but, and, and part of it is, you know, so many, part of the other portion of, you know, all fields have their own degree of inaccessibility, you know, engineers, we love, we love ourselves some technical language, uh, uh, <laughs> and philosophers are the same way. Uh, which is only compounded by the fact that many of the classics were written using technical language of a different era in a different language. Uh, so even when they are translated, sometimes it's, sometimes it's not the, the easiest to, to read. Actually, uh, a resource that I would recommend to anybody who's interested in philosophy, uh, is the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Uh, I believe it's plato.stanford.edu. Uh, and it's, Sort of like a Wikipedia for philosophy, but each article they they outsource to, to different philosophy professors, basically uh, mm-hmm. on their expertise, and they they do a good job of doing some broad strokes and then also getting into the details. They they're really great about documenting sources in case you're curious about anything. Uh, I relied on that website countless times during during the philosophy undergraduate when it came to to writing essays and understanding what exactly Hegel was talking about. <laughs> right. Well, and I mean, <clears throat> doesn't it cross back into the, especially during the enlightenment into the practical? I mean, wasn't Descartes Cartesian, the Cartesian coordinate system was basically a thought experiment. Was it not? Exactly. So, and that's just it. Uh, uh, Descartes, you know, he was a mathematician as well, famous for, for geometry. Uh, and, he, he was the first step. Uh, of course, he's famous for the, I think, therefore I am. Um, mm-hmm. And he, and the funny thing is that's like halfway, maybe not even halfway through the, the book that that came from. Uh, and as it goes on, he tries to reel it back in. He tries to return to sort of the, 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 the abstract ideal. And, and everybody else after him is like, whoa, 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 no, no, you, you can't take that back. <laughs> uh, that's the... We, we need to, we need to move forward, not, not try to, to reel it back in like that. Uh, and that's when you start getting some, you know, the first, the British and then the German, uh, philosophers, uh, yeah, talking about the, the individual. And you have the Kant who has his, Kant is sort of the, I would say the, the big revolution when it comes to it, that the, the importance is on how we perceive things. Uh, the, the line from him that I, that I always love is, uh, reason asks questions that it cannot answer. Uh, and he was basically talking about how we're, we're always going to ask questions that we can't answer yet or at all. Uh, that, you know, you know, we have some model for thinking about things in our experience, but we're always going to wonder about what if there was a black swan, uh, even if there can never be one. Mm-hmm. And he thinks a lot of philosophers in the past have gotten caught up in endlessly wondering about the nature of, of things that 
we're completely outside the realm of our experience and outside the realm of all of our models. And and so, can you give me a sense of the time frame? I, I'm not. I don't know when. Uh, when so Kant, when was Kant publishing? Kant is late 1700s, uh, early 1800s, if I remember correctly. Okay. Uh, and then, yeah, and then you you sort of from there you have uh, uh, the the Germans like Goethe and Hegel and Nietzsche uh, all, all come from there uh, uh, in the subsequent years before things. Before you, and then, and then the, the the whole that the whole German Renaissance experience sort of comes to the end with World War One and World War Two, right? And and uh, Nietzsche is associated. I can't remember. Is it is with nihilism? Yeah, it's sort of funny. So Nietzsche, oh man, I think he's underappreciated. Uh, okay, think, wasn't he also an aestheticist? Yes, he was big. He was big into to, to aesthetics and what is beauty. Uh, and the thing is, Nietzsche got a bad rap. Uh, and it's an unfortunate story because so he dies at a decently young age, and his uh, sister, his only surviving relative, I believe, was uh, was like a fascist sympathizer, basically a Nazi sympathizer, mm-hmm. uh, and she edited all of his books to be pro-Nazi. Uh, and then, so then people have this very dark and totalitarian image of Nietzsche that is not present in the original writings. Uh, so, so Nietzsche, he, he is associated with nihilism, but it's only because he thinks that that's what we're turning to. Uh, he thought with the, cause he's writing in an era of the Catholic church is falling apart and you have the rise of all these Protestant religions. Uh, he thinks that we're that now that we've lost that classical definition of the, the abstract objective good, and that we're starting to focus on the individual's perspective. He thinks there's a danger of us becoming nihilistic, meaning that we think there's no meaning in life, truth. Uh, there's no morals. Nothing is important. Uh, and he desperately wants us to avoid that. It also seems like a lot of his observations were turned into, like, you know, the might is right. Ob- yes. Which were observations were turned into moral justifications. Yes. And I think if you want to, to see how, like, if you want to see how Nietzsche really is, is just Google, like, Nietzsche and quotes about dance. Uh, he has some great quotes about dance. He says that, uh, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, he doesn't want to believe in a God who doesn't dance. Uh, uh, he said, uh, and he, he says many things like, uh, here's a quote, like, and those who were seen dancing were thought to be insane by those who could not hear the music. Uh, yeah, he, he's like, big into oh he said yeah uh, a day a day without dance is a day wasted uh <laughs> so like this is the kind of guy that that he is uh basically whenever i read him what i'm what i'm picturing in my head is uh the safety dance <laughs> uh, so i remember the one time i tried to read uh nietzsche um it was it shocked me because it was uh, I had read the equivalent of the Wikipedia version of what he was before Wikipedia existed. And uh, so I started reading some of his works and it was like, why is he talking so much about Wagner? Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. It's like it, you're effectively reading a globally known uh, philosopher and his music reviews. Uh-huh. Exactly. And I think part of that it, and part of the, 
he was very much writing for a much more popular audience than most philosophers. And he's very passionate in his writing where traditionally philosophers are very cold and reasonable people. Uh, and I think that that got him sort of a bad rap for that reason. And if I remember correctly, he hated Wagner. Yes. Uh, it's, he, he, it's, he's, he, he's a very passionate person. Uh, uh, they, they always joke about, uh, the, and that's just, it's like when his sister edited the, the volumes, she brings out all of these, like, uh, like anti-Semitic quotes. Uh, and the thing is, he's not anti-Semitic. He's sort of like anti everything. Uh, he complains about Christianity and Buddhism, like at least as often as he complains about Judaism. Uh, but when you when you edit when you edit it down, it can, it can seem a lot worse than it is. Right. So uh, the so we have all these different. Uh, I don't know. What, so what do you call these different fields of philosophy or these you know? Uh, fields. I don't know a, what the right. Yeah, fields is a good word. I think that's a, the word that a lot of like philosophy professors use. Okay. Um, specialties. They they use similar terminology to what we use in engineering. You know, you okay. talk about engineering and even between different engineers from different fields might not necessarily share, share much jargon or terminology. Uh, right. A similar thing is true with philosophers. They take the same undergraduate classes, but that's about it. <laughs> okay. Well, so I'm thinking as we, as we prepare to uh, talk about uh, Florman's book, the existential pleasures of engineering, uh, obviously we need to know what uh, we've talked a little bit about existentialism. So we can talk about what is, what it is to be existential. But sort of the what would be the competing field? I mean, would it be you know is it rationalism? The thought that uh, we're you know as engineers where we think we can figure everything out as opposed to experience it, or or what what would be sort of the the counterbalance to existentialism? Yes, I think it would be sort of the the rationalism or the idealism, uh, the belief that they they would counter that you know any of any scientific theory uh, is an existentialist would say it's wrong. You know, like we may not have figured out yet why it's wrong, but it's wrong. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, rationalism, idealism says like, no, there, and furthermore, existential would say like, we won't get to like the right answer that with science and engineering, we'll always be moving forward. We'll always be improving, but there's no end goal out there. Uh, and rationalism would say that, yeah, there, there, there's a goal out there. There's a, a universal objective truth that we are making our way towards and that maybe we even know bits and pieces of it already. Uh, so th those, I would say, are sort of two opposing views. Okay. And, and so just to uh, recap here to make sure I understand. So in existentialism, is that the idea that then we can only know truth by through our experiences? Yes. So they, yeah, existentialists tend to deny uh, any sort of objective truth or any truth that's got about through pure ideas. Uh, they think that, yeah, that your experiences are an incredibly important part of existing. Okay. Well, so that, I guess, leads us into, into the, you know, the tension that builds in this book. So uh, when I purchased this book, which was several years ago, and it wasn't until uh, you and I, Jack, started having some correspondence and decided that we'd uh, do a, a podcast about philosophy, and we decided this book would be good to center it around. You know, uh, to me, existential sounded like a nice philosophical title, but I really didn't understand why that would have any tension 
in the life of engineers. But now it makes a little more sense that there's sort of an inherent conflict between the idea of existentialism and the engineer's sort of stereotypical rational approach to problem solving. Yes, and, and, and Florman talks about this repeatedly that many times criticisms of, of engineers hinge on the the whole Dilbert stereotype that, that you've talked about on this podcast uh, many times before, that, mm-hmm. that engineers don't really live life, uh, that all they see are equations and, and numbers and that they, that they, they're, they're inhuman calculators. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and yeah, and, and, and Foreman, who is a civil engineer, by the way, the author of this book, uh, and he wrote the, the first edition back in the, in the seventies. Uh, he very much agree, disagrees. He thinks that, uh, that engineers get a profound pleasure from, from what they do uh, and in some ways experience the, the world around us more vividly than people who, who don't work with tools and, and create things. Okay. Well, tell you what, let's, uh, I want to come back to that, but, but in Foreman's book, he spends about two thirds of it hitting other topics. And I thought maybe we could hit those other topics before we return to this idea of what is the, you know, the pleasure of engineering. His, his early chapters, he sort of in the, his introduction in his first chapter, he sort of hints that this is where we're going to go. But then he immediately dives into the whole issue of, uh, well, somebody back up. So during this period where this book was being written, which is, was it, did you say the mid seventies? Yes. I think, uh, the first edition, 1976. Yeah. So, so, so during the, the, so we have to understand that we were coming out of the uh, the United States, at least, is coming out of the Cold War, uh, or in the midst of the Cold War. Still, uh, we've come out of Vietnam. Uh, we've we're starting to experience the first time the difficulties of technology, uh, uh, the 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 bad side effects of of pesticides like DDT. Uh, we're concerned about the atomic bomb and what that's doing to our world. We're starting to worry about pollution is now an issue. Uh, the first Earth Day was in 1970, so. Uh, the U.S. In, is in the, the midst of this awakening that, that we, we may have some uh, concern about what we're doing to the earth. And so there was, during this period, a real fight, I think, from people that came from a earlier time that were, you know, that looked at what life was like in the United States in the, in the, in the early 1900s and the 1920s, uh, 1930s, and saying, we're going in the wrong direction. And so there was sort of a, a real fervent anti-technology bent that said, the technology is leading us astray. It's making us not realize, uh, making us unable to live life as it should be lived. And it's those damn engineers that are bringing it to us. And so the engineers are to be, uh, are to be the ones blamed. And so there was the, the, you know, this real anti-technology, uh, argument being made. And so he spends several chapters fighting fighting back against that. Uh, and so my question for you, uh, Jack would be, obviously I, I experienced that. Uh, and so that's sort of a part of my makeup, but in an era now where all the millennials, uh, spend their time on their iPhones, is there any of this anti-technology, uh, concern left? Does do, do, do today's youth, are they all concerned that technology is bad for the human experience, or is it generally accepted that we need technology and we've got to make it work for uh, how we want to live our lives? I think that it's still present to a certain degree. I think it's greatly diminished, but it, it mm-hmm. sticks around. You still have people who who try to escape everything, uh, who, who try to escape modern life, uh, and 
think that technology is to blame. You still have people talking about how the younger generation is, is doomed because of cell phones or video games, uh, mm-hmm. or, or whatever. But, uh, I do think it's greatly diminished. And I think that the environmentalism cause, which back in the seventies, uh, environmentalists were sort of some of the major proponents of the anti-technology sentiment. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that has changed. I think a lot of environmentalists have come around and realized that, uh, we're not going to be able to turn back the clock on that. That technology is going to be the the solution rather. And so you have, you know, wind farms and solar panels, you have electric cars uh, and that sort of thing to, to try to, to try to find technological solutions to these things that we've, that we've created. Right. And to a certain extent, uh, I actually think there is a, the, the pendulum swung in the opposite direction, which is a, a metaphor that he uses because he talks about in the late 1800s, early 1900s, how for engineering, it was a time of uh, immense optimism, how mm-hmm. we, how engineers, we were going to solve all of humanity's woes, uh, that we, we'd finally broken through. We'd come through the enlightenment industrial revolution. And we we're on the verge of utopia. Um, and then world war two happened. And then the environmental consequences of many of the, the developments of, the the past decades became evident and people became very pessimistic about engineering. And I think to a certain extent, we're returning to an era of perhaps undue optimism uh, Mm -hmm. uh, with sort of tech startups thinking that, that, Oh, with brand new technology and harnessing the internet, uh, we're going to solve all of humanity's woes and everybody's going to have a great education and free transportation and, and everything. Uh, And, there's a certain naivety or, or, uh, overblowing what, what engineering is capable of, uh, that, yeah, we're going to fix problems, but some problems are, I mean, certain problems for a long time have been more social problems than they've been engineering problems. Uh, and they may not have purely technical solutions. Right. Well, you can't pollute if you're just playing Angry Birds all day. So, that's <laughs> a problem. Yeah, yeah. There, there's no smoke coming out of a out of a an, an iPad, is there? No, no, not at all. Right. Well, Florman makes the case that technology is not to blame in in these chapters where he talks about the anti technology movement and how uh, you know technology is not the 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 cause. He he talks about the fact that is it the engineer's fault that we uh, the engineers built the car and people like to drive fast uh or the you know the engineer invented air conditioning and people like to sit in inside their homes in in coolness instead of the 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 heat of the summer i think one of the examples he uses is that the the civil engineering professional society back in the the 1940s and 1950s and even earlier was concerned about air pollution and water pollution uh mm-hmm. But nobody was really waiting to hear it at the time. And instead, we decided that the best use of engineering expertise was put a man on the moon. And we did it. Uh-huh. The, and th- that's very true. And I don't think – I think I, I idolize astronauts. Uh, I don't mean to mean that was a bad thing. But uh, engineers, we're, we're going to devote our efforts to where society thinks that it's needed. Right, right. When One can look at the, uh, the migration of engineers to Silicon Valley – uh, as indication that uh, engineers, like all others, go where the money is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and yeah, we're we're long past the era for for to large extent of you know the these individual uh, scientists and engineers in their 
you know, back in the, the 17 and 1800s, you know, discovering fundamental physics, you know, in their bedroom or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. Nowadays, it takes large amounts of money. And even then, the kind of people who were making these discoveries tended to be, you know, wealthy people who could afford the equipment and the, the leisure time. Uh, right. And, and nowadays, you know, you have, you know, massive projects, you know, where we have to build huge particle accelerators to, to try to break ground in, in physics. Uh, so and that, all that costs money. Uh, and if, and if society as a whole, uh, is not willing to, to front that money, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you talked about the professional societies and sort of the traditional, you know, argument that, that engineers themselves put forward and, and Foreman talks about this as well as professional societies is engineers are here, uh, to do good for society that our role is to make sure people are safe and to make sure the bridges don't fall down and make sure that, you know, the cars drive, you know, and, and have appropriate safety equipment on them, but that there's no, there's nothing in it for the engineer. And Florman sort of goes on to say, well, there is something in it for the engineer. Do you have any thoughts on why engineers find joy in their work? It's yeah. The the it ultimately comes down to the act of creation. The you, you know, that he talks about. There's quotes about engineers talking about harnessing the powers of nature, uh, right? And civil engineers talking about you know, uh, basically harnessing water and earth to 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 their will, basically. And yeah, there's a <laughs> and like that sounds super dramatic and everything, but like that is ultimately what it comes down to. And I think that we do tend to. To, to enjoy what it is that we do. We, I still remember my, my first controls lab making just a basic, it's basically a basic AC unit. We had a, a fan with a heater element in front of it with a, with a, a thermocouple further downstream of it and making a programming a controller so that you could put in a temperature that you wanted at the thermocouple and the, the fan would adjust its speed and the, and the heater would adjust its, uh, its power to get the temperature you wanted downstream and just watching it oh, increase in temperature and then maintain it. And then you'd turn it down and then it would decrease in temperature and then maintain it. And like just seeing, you know, you, you wanted this thing to happen and then now it's unfolding in front of you. I know, you know, you frequently talked about programming, just the, the led to flash, you know, you, you, all of these fascinating forces of, of nature and pieces of technology. And here it is doing what you want it to do. Yeah. Yeah, feedback control is a beautiful thing. Incredibly, <laughs> I always I also like the point that he makes uh, in his book too that you know we we choose our profession you know because we're looking for interesting work. Uh, it's not necessarily about the money or the job security or the prestige, um, but just solving interesting problems. And you know I I think that's still pretty true today to this point. You know that's why you get engineers who work at SpaceX despite putting in 80 hour weeks because they really believe in the project and it's, it's interesting or, uh, you know, you see on internet forums all the time, like, uh, you know, oh, I'm looking to go into engineering cause I hear it pays well. And everyone's like, well, that's the wrong reason to get into it. You gotta <laughs> yeah. like what you do. <laughs> yes. And I, I, just, I mean, it's why so many engineers including some of y'all are into, you know, home brewing and everything, you know, it's like, you think like, oh, you, you're you're off work. Why would you Why would you go and like set up more thermocouples and heaters and, and everything <laughs> else and program controllers? Uh, like that's what you do all day at work. And it's like, well, that's. But like, I enjoy doing this, and I enjoy the the product that comes out of it. Right. 
and and so Brian, I think you talked about this when we were talking about movies last episode uh, with regard to the movie Real Genius, where you're talking about uh, it sort of brought up uh, the analogy of those who are working on the atomic bomb project that that knew there were uh, horrendous uh, outcomes that were uh, that were possible from that work, but the work itself was so fascinating that they continued working on it. That was the analogy of the story was people who got so obsessed with trying to build the, you know, biggest, baddest laser without thinking, man, the people who are financing this might have an application in mind that we don't agree with. Mm -hmm. Or we wouldn't be as enthusiastically working on this if we knew what it was going to be used for. Right. But I, I, I guess my point is that there is a joy in problem solving, no matter what the problem, that if, if you, if you, find the the problem to be solved successfully or sufficiently challenging that it's hard to say no to it you want to you know we as engineers are problem solvers we want to solve the problem i mean and ultimately it comes down to like why is candy crush so popular because like people love solving <laughs> puzzles right uh, like right. what engineers do is like that that sounds like it's demeaning or something but what we do is not too far off from like playing candy crush all day right I've often thought, thought there's something very seductive about uh, military-type problems for engineers. You know, put put the bomb from point A to point B. You know, oh, yeah, design, sure. design, design a better bomb that gets from point A to point B. And you're given, and in, in, in with military projects, you tend to be given, you know, huge budgets and get to be, you get to work with things that explode and everybody... So many engineers I've talked to love things that explode. Uh, <laughs> that too, but it just, it even, I mean, you've hit upon the point. It is the essence of the problem uh, for most military, uh, you know, projectile types of problems. It's so textbook that your brain latches onto it. Exactly. I mean, and so many times, because I know in, you know, more consumer industry, you know, we want this thing for this price, you know, make it as cheap as possible or whatever. And then in military projects, it's often, oh, you have an idea for a better bomb. We'll, we'll pay for it. You know, mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's it, the, the engineer has a lot more direction on those in many cases and can, can exert themselves more fully. So it can be very seductive. Mm-hmm. And they're easy to test. The users are very limited. Well, and the, the funny thing about that, and it's something that I've realized working at, at, at Sandia is a, Sandia is larger now than I think it's been in decades. Uh, and part of that, I, I'm, I'm pretty confident, is the U.S. has not done a nuclear detonation test since 1992. So it takes a lot of inventive engineering to make sure that something will still work reliably uh, when you're not allowed to test it. Yeah, I've often pointed out to people in internet comment threads all the time, whenever they point to the uh, National Ignition Facility out in, is that Mars Livermore, I believe? I believe so as well, yeah. Yeah, everyone points to that, and there's always press releases that talk about fusion energy, and this is a big fusion energy, and I, I love pointing out to people that this is a stockpile stewardship problem. Yes. This machine was built to make sure that our thermonuclear warheads work 30 years 30 years after they were constructed. Yeah, the the, the phrase that goes around here at Sandia is always and never, mm-hmm. which uh referring to the the stockpile needs to always work when you need it to and never work when you don't want it to. Mhm. Uh 
which yeah. with the, the kind of reliability and the and the lack of full scale testing, you know, we can test lots of things, but we can't test a full detonation. Uh, you you have to be very creative, and you have to make some pretty creative models. Yep. And again, you immediately start the engineering brain starts going down the rabbit hole. How would you make sure that this atomic bomb still works? Yeah, exactly. Without actually blowing it up. Mm-hmm. How many fail safes is necessary? You know, can I do it with fewer fail safes? Can I somehow find a way to fit in another one? Mm-hmm. Well, and so sort of back to the the idea of the you know the engineer's role or or the engineer's enjoyment. Um, towards the end of the book, Florman r- reminds us of the story of uh, Sisyphus. Uh, who was condemned by the gods to forever roll a, a huge stone up a mountain, uh, only to see it fall back to the bottom each time he reached the summit. And uh, well, first of all, I got so I remember reading that story in in high school. Are are today's high schoolers uh, uh, made to read the same thing? Were you familiar with Sisyphus uh, as uh, as you got out of high school? Yeah, I was. I mean, but then I took okay. I took I took Latin and stuff, so I was oh, okay. very familiar with a lot of those old myths. <laughs> right. So so, uh, so any another way to ask that question is: Would your average high schooler know who Sisyphus is? Oh, probably not. I would say. Uh, but then again, I have a pretty pessimistic view of our, of our education system, to be <laughs> frank. So I'm optimistic about a lot of things, but that's not that's not one of them. Can confirm most high schoolers do not know who Sisyphus is. Yeah, right. So so anyway, Sisyphus is is condemned uh, to roll this rock up the hill, but uh, Florman makes the case that this doesn't mean that Sisyphus wasn't happy. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, he says that this is why Sisyphus can serve as a symbol of the modern engineer. Today's engineers lost faith in the utopia that engineers of an earlier age thought they were bringing to mankind. Yet his work, springing as it does from the most basic impulse of humanity, can fill him with existential joy. Exactly. And I think uh, – and if rolling rock up the hill over and over again, it sounds too depressing. Uh, mm-hmm. I think another way to view it is if – if an engineer ever does get the rock to the top of the hill and gets it to stay there, they just immediately start looking for another rock. Right. So, uh, we, we do make progress, but it's not towards any final goal. Uh, cause we'll, we'll always create new goals. Yeah. What I remember in the book, uh, soul of a new machine, uh, they were talking, I believe it was the data, I think it was data general engineers, but they were talking about, uh, the reward for doing a good job was getting to do another job. And so, and they said in that regard, it was like a pinball machine. If you were really good at playing pinball, you didn't get any, you know, you got no coupons, you got no money. Your reward was you got free games of pinball. And so I, I think that uh, it does make sense. That analogy does work for engineering in that if you love the engineering work of, of solving the problem and, and working on trying to roll that, uh, that rock to the top of the hill, that as soon as you have it to the top of the hill, you're looking around for the next problem to solve. You're looking, you know, let the rock go, let it roll to the bottom and let's try the whole adventure over again. Yeah. And, and I mean, some people are definitely going to find this de- depressing. I know it can be a hard thing to, <laughs> it can be a hard thing to internalize. And I think it, you know, it, it only comes back to the whole existential, you know, like living in the present, like what matters is how you feel about what you're doing at the moment, not how, you know, not how you're going to feel at the, 
the end of forever. You know, like when are you going mm-hmm. to accomplish everything? Like that's not going to happen. So you should just worry about what's going to happen now. And now I got a question for both, I guess, Jack and Jeff. Um, wouldn't you say that it's actually begging the question or there's a lot of assumptions that engineering would be a Sisyphean task, that the end goal is a utopia. And I don't know that that is something that modern graduate and engineers would ever make the assumption of. Oh, no. And I think that's, that's sort of the, the point is that used to engineers were striving towards yeah. a utopia and they were wrong. <laughs> they were, they were naive and I understand they were caught up in the, in the grandeur of it all. Yeah. Uh, but that, yeah, no modern engineers, you need to, it's, it shouldn't be about that because you're not going to get to a utopia. I mean, look at how many utopia and dystopia books oh, yeah, out there. I, I, I'm not reducing it to advice. I'm also, but I'm just saying the whole notion of utopia is completely gone. Yes. I, and I mean, and part of that, you look at our fiction, how much both utopia and dystopia books are out there. Mm-hmm. It's quickly, and even in anthro history through nonfiction, it's quickly become apparent that, uh, that one person's utopia is pretty much everybody else's dystopia. Now, line up for your RFID tags, everyone. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> so, My utopia wins. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So, And and I, I think that's why, yeah, in, in a modern engineer, and I think that they've internalized that to, to a great extent, modern engineers. Uh, I, I think where you see some of that mentality creeping back up is in the, the tech startup field. Hmm. I should really try to kickstart utopia. There you go. <laughs> Seriously, we could put together a hilarious Kickstarter video for just Utopia as I'm an sure. abstract concept. Yeah. And will this be a hardware project or just software app only? Why not both? <laughs> okay. Can make some splashy website. Yeah. <laughs> what is our product? Whatever you want it to be. Yeah. <laughs> it's the end goal. Exactly. Can I campaign for a... Uh, uh, political office on this as well. You're not already. It's a free country. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Until it isn't. <laughs> Until Jeff gets elected. <laughs> uh, then you're in trouble. Then he becomes the grand vizier of us all. Sky, exactly. Skynet for president. Why choose the lesser evil? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, we should probably uh, we should probably think about uh, wrapping up our conversation here, uh, Jack. I, uh, so, towards the end of the book, uh, Florman argues that engineers find meaning only in a world where they're allowed to struggle, uh, to quest, to create, and uh, he sort of makes the argument that it's this challenge that that engineers uh, enjoy, and that's the joy they find in in their careers. And my question to you would be. If, if it's the struggle that we enjoy, does it matter how big the struggle? Does it matter how big the quest? Not at all. Uh, what matters is how interesting you find it, how you feel mm-hmm. about it. And yeah, it, I mean, it, when it all comes back to, to solving puzzles, no, it doesn't matter how, how big the puzzle is or how many people care about it. What matters is, do you care about it? Uh, and I think the important thing for a lot of engineers. And this even comes back to Nietzsche, who he, he talked about how the you need to find what you believe is important and you need to believe it. Like don't be ashamed of it. Uh, you need to stand by and 
pursue your interests. And I think that that's something that a lot of engineers do. It's that you see so many engineers who choose to, to remain working on, on the floor of the shop, uh, for their entire careers. You know, they, they maybe offer promotions into management, but it's not what they want to do. Uh, right. and I think that they, they're the ones who have figured that out. Okay. Well, uh, I appreciate your, your willingness to come on and, and, uh, join us, Jack. Do you, uh, before we wrap up, do you have any sort of final thoughts about this, uh, this interesting mix of philosophy and engineering? No, I just want to emphasize that I have an undergraduate in engineering and undergraduate in philosophy, which means that I'm an expert in precisely nothing. Um, <laughs> so, so if you, yeah, so you, I would recommend you, if you're really interested in things, you go read, read other stuff, uh, start with the, the Stanford encyclopedia of philosophy and reference their sources. They'll, they'll be able to tell you how things actually work, uh, as opposed to how I think they work. Right. Well, we all, uh, we all start somewhere and it sounds like you're, you've gotten a, a good start in trying to figure out, uh, what, what the whole, uh, the whole engineering career and engineering life is all about. Thank you. All right. If, if, uh, our listeners uh, should want to, uh, correspond with you or have conversation with you, is there someplace we could direct them? Uh, that would be Jack B Reed at gmail.com. And I'm sure Jeff will put that in the show notes. I sort of had a website. I had it. I was using it for a school related thing. And now that undergraduate is over, I took it down and the domain's there. And I think some contact information is there, but that's about it. Okay. Jack Reed at geocities.com. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> see, see, what, what you don't realize is that geocities is a thing that is like slightly before my era. Mm -hmm. It's, it's getting that old. I didn't make a BBS joke. I made a GeoCities joke. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Jack, we certainly appreciate your coming on and uh, joining us for this episode of the, uh, the podcast and, and uh, certainly appreciate your time. Okay. Thank you. All right. Have a good evening. You too. Thank you. Great to talk to you, Jack. Likewise. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.